Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome back to the Reformed Dissenters, the show where Reformed Christians dissent against popular ideas of culture by asserting a biblical worldview. I'm Bruce Johnson, of course, joined by my brother Jacob Johnson. I think it took like three tries to get this down now, finally. To get Guys. this intro To get started. the intro started. That this this is the longest it has ever taken to get a show started. You know I, you know, it's been two years. I think after two years we're owed one blip. And it's been a very long day. And um and we're and and yeah, that's I'm out of excuses. So that's that's yeah. where we yeah. that's where I'm we Jacob are. Johnson, everybody. I, hi Jacob Johnson, nice to meet you. I'm Bruce Johnson. <laughs> I'm your brother. So um, today is Literature Wednesday, and uh, we're off to a roaring start here at the Reformed Centers. Um, we are reading not the Lion War though. Not the well. That would we've be got loud. One in our logo, so I feel like that should count. Uh, we are reading Paradise Restored by David Chilton. And today we're reading chapters 8, 9, and 15. Look at that. I got the chapters right. And uh, today is all about disputing all the myths, legends, hearsay. Uh, I didn't say heresy, but I'm this close. And, close. Uh, and uh, erroneous theology from our perspective and Chilton's as well. We are attacking some of the shivaliths. What? That's not a word. I'm, but Yeah, actually. That's... Yeah, that some of the, the the most strongly held, some of the most um, some of the biggest fallacies that um, egregious are held by some in other eschatological camps, and so we'll be attacking those head on today. So buckle up. If you get offended easily, hi, we're the Reformed Dissenters. You can email us at trdshow at protonmail and that's about it. We're we're not gonna we're not gonna sugarcoat this. It's gonna get nasty. Uh, but before we get into that, we have to do what we always do, and that's our verse of the week, and Jake takes it on Wednesdays. So, Jake, what do you have today? I like sugar coats, though. I, yeah, fun I've never eat. worn one before, but I imagine yeah. they, would, they would be nice. Wouldn't keep out the rain too well. But Our verse this week is Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3, and it says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glorify in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. And again, that was Psalm 34, verses 1 through 3. And in doing some research on this verse, I wanted Specifically, to go over this last sentence, glorify the Lord with me, let us exalt his name together. And I wanted to try and find a few things on that sort of togetherness. This is a, a group group project, if you will. Uh, this is a group mission. Um, and in doing that research, I found something very interesting in Calvin's commentaries. And I, I to, to the point where I have a quote from his commentaries, and I want to read it to everybody. So in Calvin's commentary, he says, Let all be animated unitedly and in a public manner to give praise to God. Let us give thanks publicly to God. And um, I, what I loved is that that word, publicly. This is a public praise. And it kind of resonated back to what we discussed in um, Confessional County by Raymond Simmons, where he was talking about how the nation needs to acknowledge God. The nation needs to confess God from its, you know, from the highest points. 
And so this kind of reminded me of that, that, that this is a public uh, praising of God. This is a public thanks to God. And that that includes the nation as well. Now, Calvin doesn't specifically state that, but I think we can make that sort of correlation that this is a national thing, nationally giving thanks to God. And um, another interesting thing is that Glenn Beck, and it's weird for me to bring in Glenn Beck, but he was just doing on his show a national day of prayer on his show, that the nation needs to repent through prayer because it is in sin. The nation is in oh, sin. Um, very, very interesting. Yeah. Very awesome for him to be saying that. Because it's yeah. so very true. But um, I think that whole point of the nation proclaiming God. The nation giving thanks to God. And publicly stating that he is Lord. So, yeah. Amen. Wow. Thought that was very, very interesting research there. Yeah, you don't expect that from a Mormon. But yeah, I mean, that's that's cool. Rocks, rocks, a broken clock is right twice a day. That yep, yes indeed. And Mormons are broken clocks. So, (laughs) um, chapter eight in this book, he lays it down, and he lays it down hard. This is um, this is some intense stuff, and it's it's marvelous, and it's. It's one of those things where, you know, Jake, you know how there's like these really huge, huge concepts that sometimes it's really tough to wrap your mind around. Um, you know, we've been talking about the kingdom for so long that we've kind of wrapped our minds around some of the biggest aspects of it that are the hardest to understand because we've been in, you know, in in books studying it for so long. And it's really just, you know forefront of our minds it's what we talk about all the time we're really studying this so we've wrapped our minds around the larger chunks of it that are harder to understand Mm -hmm. but a lot of people are still confused right like and it's understandable we were a little confused for a while right like it's it's a confusing thing it's spiritual but it's also physical but it's a heavenly kingdom but it's an earthly kingdom what the heck does this mean right it can be a little confusing at times to understand the the full not just to understand it but also to understand the ramifications of it how it plays Mm -hmm. out right yeah so i felt like he took that huge topic and he's like all right i'm gonna devote a whole chapter really that's what the whole book is that's the title it literally implies that paradise restored that is the kingdom in a nutshell in two words right but this chapter called the coming of the kingdom spot on sums it up in one chapter. And actually, if you listen to our Monday episode, this is where I drew a lot of our theological, a lot of my theological wrap up. I drew it from this chapter. So a quote on page 65, Chilton said, quote, Adam was a subordinate ruler, <clears throat> a king prince under God. He was a king only because God had created him as such and ordered him to rule. God's plan was for his image to rule the world under his law and oversight, end quote. And that was the beginning. That was what we were created for. That was what humans were created to do. No matter how much the environmentalists want to pretend like, quote unquote, Mother Nature is king and is in charge and should be ruling over us. That's a complete reversal of what God actually created us to do. He Mm -hmm. didn't create the earth to rule over us. He created us to rule over the earth, which is right there 
huge argument against environmentalism and why we don't believe in such things. A little further down on the page, though, he said, quote, but Adam was unfaithful. He wanted to be his own God, making up his own law. But as we've seen in the preceding chapters, this incident did not abort God's plan for dominion through his image. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to accomplish the task which the first Adam had failed to do, end quote. And that's the running theme, right? Now, that's one of the more, I'll say obvious, because it was intended to be obvious, right? If you read the New Testament, even reading the Old Testament, if you actually know how to read the Old Testament, it becomes abundantly clear that that's the purpose of Christ, right? One of the big purposes and one of the big works of what Christ did on the cross to be the second Adam, to be what the first Adam could never be, right? But then also, um, he kind of expounds on this. That's the beginning. And then we start to, after the fall, after all that happens, it's depressing for a while. There's a period of history where things go downhill. We actually lose sight of what we're meant to do, right? We lose sight of what humans were created to do, um, to work in this world, to bring glory to God, to take dominion over all things, to bring glory to God. Um, and we lose sight of that. And then Christ comes and is anointed as king and priest over this world, right? Page 67, Chilton expounded on this. And he actually expounds on Daniel when Daniel, uh, Daniel 7, 13 through 14, brilliant passage. We bring it up all the time, right? But that passage can get misconstrued so easily. Um, and it's talking about the kingdom. It's talking about this ascension of Christ, this kingly reign of Christ. And Chilton says on page 67, quote, Daniel was not predicting the second coming of Christ, but rather the climax of the first advent, in which after atoning for sins and defeating death and Satan, the Lord ascended on the clouds of heaven to be seated on his glorious throne at his father's right hand. Christ came as the son of man, the second man. 1 Corinthians 15, 47, to accomplish the task assigned to the first man. He came to be king, end quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, with that, I would like to go over another quote, which is just preceding uh, the quote that Bruce brought up and where he was directly um, commentating with the passage in Daniel, and that would be Daniel uh, 7, 13 uh, through 14. Uh, in which he says, uh, Chilton says, but notice exactly what Daniel says. Christ is going up, not down. The son Mm. of man is going to the ancient of days, not coming from him. He is not descending in clouds to the earth, but ascending in clouds to the heaven, end quote. He's saying that a lot of people think that the, the second coming, and it does talk about the second coming or, um, being in which Christ brings all of heaven down. And that's another thing we can discuss at a different point. However, this is talking about a going up. I mean, this is the ascension. This is the the death and resurrection of Christ in which Christ goes up and is now king. He sits on the throne when he goes up. So I, I that very in, thing to point out that this is, it starts, his kingdom starts when he ascended into heaven, not descends. Amen. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and that's great. And um, I'm gonna I'm gonna skip a few quotes here just for the sake of time and brevity. Um, but they he expounds on this whole concept, this whole idea, um, a lot in this chapter. So if you don't have the book, get the book Paradise Restored by David Chilton. Check this out, chapter eight. Um, I'm gonna just throw in one, maybe two quotes. Oh man, I have so many highlights here <laughs> from the rest of this chapter. Um, but I'll try and keep it brief. Um, the extent of this rain that Jacob was just addressing from the quote he pulled out, um, and really that Chilton's been addressing throughout this whole chapter, the extent of this rain is so much more than you think it is. It literally bound Satan himself, right? Um, he talks about the binding of Satan on page 69. He said, quote, um, Oh, sorry. Actually, this is... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let me give some context. I was just going to jump into the quote, but I have to give you some context or this won't make any sense. Um, he's talking about Luke 10, 18 through 19, which is actually Christ talking about uh, Satan. Um, a little earlier, he was talking about warfare that was raged during Christ's ministry um, against Satan. And Satan was continually losing, right? He was just losing ground. Um, and then... Christ says in Luke 10, 18 through 19, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I've given you authority to tread, tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall injure you. And then quote from Chilton, he said, quote, he, meaning Christ, explained his victories over the demons by telling his audience that the kingdom of God has come upon you. He continued. Christ continued, how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Matthew 12, 28 through 29. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in the world. He was binding Satan, the strong man, in order to plunder his house, to steal men back from the devil. And, end quote, and I'll expound on that a little bit. Steal more than men, right? And David Chilton, I'm sure, didn't mean to just limit it to that but because he expounds on it throughout the whole rest of the book. But I would just add to that one quote, just so you get the full context of the book, mm -hmm. to steal everything back, <laughs> right? The, the What is it that's stolen from the strong man? All of his possessions, everything, right? He's stealing back the world. What did Satan yeah. first tempt Christ with originally? When Satan tempt him, tempted him, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything <laughs> you see. And Christ didn't deny that he had those things, right? Yeah. But then what did Christ do? He bound him and he took them. He took them back. Took his stuff. He, yeah. wasn't, he didn't need Satan to give them to him because he was going to take it by force. And he did mm -hmm. on the cross, right? Um, let's see if I can if, go ahead. If I yeah. may, I have a quote on page 70 where uh, Chilton says, and this is directly, literally directly after Bruce's quote. Um, but Chilton says the de definitive defeat of Satan occurred in Christ's death and resurrection. Again and again, the apostles assured the early Christians of the fact of Christ's victory over the devil, end quote. And I bring this up to say that they mentioned this all throughout the rest of the New Testament, saying that Satan comes like a roaring lion, but if you say no, he will flee. <laughs> The lion yeah. will flee because it's no longer his kingdom. It's no longer Weakened. his stuff. Christ has taken it. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, exactly. The the state of Satan. We we give him so much credit today, and it's it's really frustrating how much the modern day church, how much power they give to Satan that he doesn't have. Right? He's tempted them so much that that he's gotten them to pretend like he has like thousands more thousands times more power than he actually does, and he is bound. And if we act like he isn't. That's just us giving him power that he doesn't actually have. So we need to understand that and stop acting like he is the ruler over this world. He's not. Um, so uh, let me wrap this up. Um, uh, page 71, because this is still a continuing conversation. He didn't wrap up everything that could be said about the kingdom in this chapter, but he addressed all the high points, right? Because the next thing someone's going to say is, wow. But look around you. Look at how bad it is. Look at all the sin. Look at this. Look at that. Right? They bring up all these things. Right? Yes, I've been in so many conversations where that is that's that's the play. Right? That's where we go. Like, oh, you call this the new heavens and the new earth? Like, look how bad it is. Right. <clears throat> well, uh, page seventy-one. Quote: The kingdom was established when Christ came, but it has not yet reached its full development. Like the mustard seed. The mustard tree is started out small, but will grow to enormous size, just as the stone David saw became a mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom will grow in size, spreading everywhere, until the knowledge of God covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's, it's gradual. It's not instant, right? Every single time Christ was asked about, this, about the kingdom, did he ever say, it's instantaneous. No. Mm. He said the full culmination will surprise you, right? It'll come upon you like a thief in the night, right? So it'll surprise you. It'll be like, whoa, oh, there it is, you know? But also every single, every single example he gave was gradual. It's 11 in a lump, right? It is a small mustard seed that grows. It is a little trickle that comes out from underneath a temple that grows into a massive river, right? It's, it's something that starts small and gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and brings healing to the entire world, right? That's the kingdom of God. It's not this instantaneous thing. All right, moving into chapter 9. Um, Jake, did you have anything in chapter 8 you want to wrap up? We got, ooh, we got 10 minutes left, so... Yeah, I just have a little bit. In we can just nine. move on cool. to chapter nine. Yep. Cool. So I'll just take some of those and then we'll go right into 15. Um, chapter nine was all about the rejection of Israel. And I think that this is extremely timely given what's happening right now in the Middle East and the uproar and everyone's, you know, the reason that we aren't like, hey, we, we got to, you know, we're not either side of the crazy, right? We're not like, oh, Israel's the worst. Like, ah, you go, Hamas, right? That's that's horrible. Hamas is evil. They're terrorists. They're just dis- mm-hmm. dis- despicable people. And right? even so, on a um, on a different level, we're kind of like Israel as a sovereign nation. Hamas is a terrorist group. They yeah. shouldn't be attacking. It should be mm-hmm. nation against nation. This is sure. an unbiblical war. But yeah. yeah, but yeah, but and at the same time, we're also not like. Yeah, go Israel. We gotta give them all of our money. We gotta go right. overseas and die for them. We gotta because the Bible says so. Well, no, no, it doesn't. Sorry. <laughs> um, and and 
this is this is a really good chapter for dispelling a lot of those notions. Um, but so many people, it's kind of mind blowing to me how many people today have this notion of Israel's the promised land, the promised people, and they're they're you know they're the covenant children of God, and if you don't treat them well, then you're not saved, and your whole nation's gonna fall around you. And yeah, people go crazy, and it's all because they have this completely contorted and twisted idea of how covenants work and of covenantal his- the covenantal history of, of Israel. If they truly understood their Bibles, they would be ecstatic about the fact that the covenant has been opened up to us, to Gentiles, <laughs> right? That's a glorious truth. And when you say that Israel is still the same way it was, in the same place, and they, by right of blood, are to be treated like an upper class of human beings or a separate class or yada, 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 right? You still say that, even though, I believe it was John himself, prior to Christ, said, uh, when he was baptizing, that God could make, the out of these very stones laying on the ground, children of Abraham, right? Mm -hmm. They missed the point. It wasn't a bloodline. It wasn't any of that. It was a covenant between God that said there's blessings, there are cursings. And then that covenant was renewed in Christ that says, yes, there's still those things. But now there's forgiveness of sins. There are so many more blessings. And now it's for the entire world, right? The new covenant is so much better than the old. That's what Hebrews says. And yet we still want to, in our minds, place ourselves somehow back in the old covenant. That's what we're doing. And we we shouldn't do that. We need to be very careful not to do that. Um, Page 76, um, Chilton said, quote, The kingdom was to be taken from the Jews and given to a new nation. Who would this nation be? The Apostle Peter, after, after citing the same Old Testament text Jesus used, gave the definitive answer writing to the church, quote, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. The clincher is that God had used this identical language in speaking to the covenant people of Israel at Mount Sinai. Quote, you shall be my own possession among the peoples, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. What once had been true of Israel, Peter says, is now and forever true of the church. End quote. So, um... I'm going to pass it over to Jake now because there's a lot more that could be said. There's a lot more in this chapter, um, but we're simply out of time. So uh, I'll pass it to you, Jake. You got a few minutes to chat about the last chapter there, chapter 15, if you had some some quotes you want to throw in. Yeah. Chapter 15 is um, the title of chapter 15 is the day of the Lord. Um, and he speaks about, and, and I think, I think we should start, Unless Bruce, I know Bruce, you had a had a quote in the very beginning, which could set up the rest of everything sure. else. So if you wanted to start sure. with that, 
Yeah, page 127, Children said, One of the greatest interpretive mistakes made by Bible students is the assumption that the Bible cannot use the same expression, such as coming, in different senses. Much of the present book has been written to refute that basic error, end quote. Yeah. So, Chilton, the um, quote I would like to go over again on page 126, um, Chilton says, once we understand this, however, we seem to be presented with a different problem. What about the second coming of Christ? Since so many prophecies turn out to be the to be references to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, how can we be sure that any prophecy refers to a future future literal return of Jesus Christ? Yeah, and, you know, end quote, sorry. Uh, and um, this is kind of what I was discussing before um, when we were briefly talking about that in, the, in chapter 8. Um, but that very question literally arises in my mind all the time. It's like, so what prophecies are there left for us to interpret as for the future for to come? Mm. And yeah. there are, let me, uh, let me just say that there are, we're in, in the position that says that there aren't are, is a uh, hyper, wouldn't it be hyper preterists who say that mm -hmm. there are no left? Yeah. yeah. And that, that is a wrong view that we do not hold to uh, just yep. to, be sure that people understand that. Yeah. Um, but I'll continue with uh, Chilton's quote on page 129. Chilton says, God's resting on the seventh day is an important part of the judgment theme of the day. For it actually speaks to his, sorry, actually speaks to his enthronement in heaven, surveying and judging his creation from his seat in the glory cloud. And he goes over this a lot, this sense of what is the day of the Lord or um, uh, glory cloud or coming on the clouds. Um, that's He went over that a lot. And I would suggest going through chapter 15 to figure out what he really is talking about um, because there's so much I couldn't pick out quotes for all of it. Otherwise, I would be quoting the entire chapter. Um, so. Yeah, unless you had another quote, Bruce, I will continue on. Not really. I had some quotes on page 128 that talked about kind of introducing that topic, but it's a little mm -hmm. out of place, I think, in our conversation. So yeah. if people want to learn more about that, it was fascinating. What he did was he went all the way back to the beginning of like where this idea of coming on the clouds or the day of the Lord, where that language first mm -hmm. came from. And it's actually all the way back in Genesis, right at the creation story. Um, and he walks through that and then, Amos is the first time the, the actual phrase is used, the book of Amos. And mm -hmm. it's fascinating. He discusses that there because they actually, the, the people of Israel in that time when the book of Amos was written were using this phrase, even though it had never been written before in the Bible that we have, right? In the books that, that are, um, uh, oh my goodness, not the Septuagint. What's the, uh, oh my goodness, Jake, what's the old one? Ah. <sighs> uh. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't know, yeah, right but it, it's what the Jews preserved that we have today <clears throat> known as the old covenant. Um, but prior to the book of Amos, we've never found that phrase. And then it's referenced in the book of Amos and it's like this commonly used thing. 
And so he goes on to discuss why that is and what it means and all that stuff. So read this chapter and find all that yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but until then, I will continue on page 130 where uh, Chilton says, The coming of the cloud was the coming of the Lord as the spirit of the day in judgment in, in judgment. And judgment, like the cloud, was to has two aspects vindication and protection of the faithful on the one hand, and destruction of God's enemies on the other. Just saying that this this day of the Lord has two separate aspects to it. Um and I'll just continue on very quickly to re uh Chilton brings this question back up. Um, talking about the interpretations of these prophecies. How do we know that any prophecy really means the last days? Um, and so he brings it back and says, on page 132, he says, is such an interpretation valid? We should note, at least in passing, that the church throughout all the ages has never allowed for such a view. All the creeds have declared the future coming of Christ, the resurrection of all men, and the general judgment to be fundamental, non-negotiable. Um, the closing words of the Athanasian Creed, and he'll, he'll go on to explain that, but that's not part of my quote. Um, so, he's basically saying it has been understood throughout church history that this is that there will be an end days. However, we don't we don't use that as our final authority. It's just something interesting to also note that this hasn't been the interpretation throughout history. Not to say that it isn't wrong, just to say there are thousands of people well before us who have a lot more studying of the scriptures than we ever do that say this. It might be true. Um, so... Here, we come back to scripture for the answer. This is the very last few sentences of this chapter, and I will end with this. Um, on page 133, Chilton says, Well, the day of the Lord, collapsing universe motif, runs throughout the Bible text on judgment. The distinguishing mark of the last day is that the dead will be raised. The resurrection of all men is in the nature of the case. Uh, in the nature of the case, unrepeatable. Uh, so, end quote. <coughs> Sorry. Um, with that, um, I think the point that should be mentioned is that, and really brought this up, because he doesn't bring that up too much, but I think what he's trying to point out is that there is still, and it talks about this in the Bible, that the last enemy to be conquered by Christ is death, the enemy of death. Death will no longer be. Obviously, we do not see the case in our world now, so that has to be into the future. That has to be coming. So yep. we have to know that there is something further on and that there are things in the Bible which talk to a future. And those things are readily seen, and then I was mentioning before, of Christ's ascension into the clouds, but also there is in his second coming a descension. And that, that descension is him bringing all the people from heaven to earth. And that 
there will be us living on the earth with all the people from before. Uh, and yep. Doug Wilson goes into a lot of that in Heaven Misplaced um, yep. by Doug Wilson. Very, very interesting book as well. Yes, but sir. with that said, I am I am concluded with Chapter 15. That's great. Thanks for the wrap-up, Jake. Thank you all for watching or listening to us. Um, and, uh, yeah, check out our show website, trdshow.net. We're looking forward to seeing you on Friday. We have a discussion topic this week, so don't forget to check that out. And uh, we will see you then. And remember, everyone, in all that you do, do it as unto the Lord.